0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent 4th Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 23, The Power of Prepositions, Basil's On the Holy Spirit. Last time, we took a look at Basil's Christology and his famous refutation of Eunomius. Now, it's finally time to turn to Basil's treatment of that poor, long-neglected participant in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The work we have from Basil called On the Holy Spirit is probably written sometime in the 370s. This marked the most mature decade of Basil's career. He was established as a bishop and his theology was probably at its zenith. So what did Basil have to say with his decades of wisdom and experience about the mysteries of God? Well, he begins this treatise on the highest things in the universe by talking about the smallest things, prepositions. Well, okay, he actually says that he wants to start by examining words, but the particular words he is most interested in are prepositions. Now, why is that? Well, for two reasons, one of them more abstract and one more practical. The more abstract reason is that language is the way we communicate and come to the truth, but also the means by which we deceive one another. So if we want to come to the truth, we have to examine the words we use very carefully to make sure we stay on the straight and narrow, rather than being led astray. The more practical reason Basil cares so much about prepositions is because he thinks people are being led astray by them. In fact, the heretical arguments he wants to refute rely entirely on prepositions. For this, Basil is relying on an argument from Aetius, whom you may remember as a leading light of the radical Heterousians and teacher of the infamous Eunomius. The fact that Basil chooses to call out Aetius by name when Eunomius makes a similar argument suggests that Basil is interested in more broadly refuting the Heterousian cause rather than Eunomius. I mean, after all, he could have just put all this in his Against Eunomius book that we talked about in the last main episode. But no. Atheus had a reputation as the founder of this Heterousian school, so in attempting to refute it all, Basil wants to go back to the source. Atheus's basic argument runs as follows. When things have different natures we use different words to describe them so when we want to know the relationship between father son and holy spirit we should look at the words the bible uses to describe them Anadius says we find that the bible uses different prepositions to describe each person's role in salvation he points to 1 corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 in which paul writes there is one god and father from whom are all things and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things." Atius reads this and says, Aha! So all things are from the Father, but through the Son, which means the Son is different from the Father. Just like I might say that a lumberjack chops down a tree through the axe that chops it, the lumber is from the lumberjack through the use of the axe. Basil is absolutely horrified by this argument, and he thinks that comparing the Immortal Son to an inanimate lump of matter is the highest form of blasphemy. He says with obvious ire, These people apply these foolish, empty, and deceptive observations even to the simple and straightforward teaching on the Spirit, and so they make God the Word inferior and abolish the Holy Spirit. They do not shrink from applying to the Ruler of All a term ordained for lifeless instruments. End quote. With 17 centuries of distance between us and the controversy, it can be easy to dismiss Basil's outrage as performative, or at least inessential to the argument. But we miss its significance if we do that. Basil is a churchman who has a deep relationship to all three persons of the Trinity. He has given his life to leading the praises of God in church. The idea that some of his fellow churchmen would tell falsehoods about the God who saved them, about the God for whom his family went into exile for a generation, that enrages Basil, especially when those people should know better. Basil is telling us something about the depth of feeling engendered when our relationship with God is tested. If we do not listen carefully, the loss is ours, not his. That being said, outrage is still not an argument, and Basil knows he must refute Aetius with argument, not just outrage. Which he does by pointing out that Aetius is cherry-picking biblical verses to make his point. For the Bible does not always use the preposition from for the father and through for the son. In fact, it applies both prepositions to both members of the Trinity. This part of the argument is pretty long because it turns out there are a lot of exceptions to atius's neat little rule to sum it up briefly the son is described as the one things are from in romans chapter 11 verse 36 ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 through 16 colossians chapter 2 verse 19 john chapter 1 verse 16 and luke chapter 8 verse 46 the spirit is also described as the one things are from in galatians chapter 6 verse 8 1 john chapter 3 verse 24 Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, and John chapter 3, verse 6. And it works the other way, too. The Father is described as the one things are through in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and Isaiah chapter 29, verse 15. Aetius also wanted to suggest that the preposition in was most appropriate to the Holy Spirit, So Basil then gives a long list of all the times that the Father is described with the preposition of in. Psalm 107, verse 13, Psalm 70, verse 6, Psalm 88, verse 16, Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1, Romans, chapter 1, verse 10, and Romans, chapter 2, verse 17. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by just piling up scriptural references. Now, I will warn you that if you look up all of these references, you may decide that Basil is padding his evidence a little bit. Some of them on first reading do not seem quite as precisely opposed to Atheist's interpretation as Basil thinks. But this too is part of Basil's point, which is that prepositions just aren't as unchanging in their meaning as Atheist thinks. There are plenty of cases where the Bible uses through in a way that is synonymous with from. For example, Just as a woman is from a man, so also a man is through a woman, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12 says. Atheist is trying to put a lot of weight on a very small word that simply cannot bear it. It has too many different meanings in too many different cases. So much for the power of prepositions to determine reality. But the heretics have another argument, which is that because the son is second to the father, he must be second in rank as well. After all, the father generates the son, not the other way around, and what is generated is inferior to that which generates. Basil, however, thinks this argument is confused. First of all, God doesn't experience time in the way that creatures do, and so there never was a time when the father existed, but the son didn't. Note here that Arius's old formula, that there was a time when the son was not, has become so toxic by this point in time that Basil simply dismisses it without the need for an extended refutation. But there is a deeper argument to be had here. For there are times when Jesus does talk as if he is inferior to the Father. In fact, he straight up says in John chapter 14, verse 28, that the Father is greater than I. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus says that even the Son doesn't know when the world will end, but only the Father. So if the word is equal to the Father in substance, then what on earth does it mean that the Father is greater than the Son, and knows things the son doesn't. To answer this question, Basil turns to a conception that you will find frequently referenced in the Cappadocians, that of the divine economy. You see, the way it works is this. Now, initially, the father had the best stock portfolio, But due to hyperinflation in the COVID era, the son's investment portfolio was all focused on baby diapers and formula, and it skyrocketed in value to the point where his portfolio became equal to the father's, and Basil prophetically foresaw this like some 4th century Jim Cramer, so he just prophetically proclaimed their equality all the way back in the 300s. No, I'm just messing with you. The word economy here is a little bit unfortunate as far as translations go. As so often happens, the problem is not that the translator's Greek is bad, but that their English could use a little work. Now, economy is a very direct translation of the Greek word oikonomia. That's where we get our word economy from, in fact. And all that word means is something like an order or a plan. Greeks would describe the way that different members of a house did different chores as an oikonomia. Of course, in the modern world, economy refers to how we arrange vast, complicated financial systems, and that has a very different ring to it. When Basil talks about the divine economy, he's talking about the way that the different members of the Trinity divvy up the work of saving the world. So, for example, it is the Son who becomes incarnate, suffers, dies, and is resurrected. And when the Son comes, he doesn't just make up his own words to speak to us. He speaks on behalf of the Father just as the Holy Spirit does not make things up, but speaks the words given by the Son. So is the Father greater than the Son? Well, yes, in the limited sense that the Father gives the Son his mission, the words to speak, and everything else. In other words, the Father is greater in the economy. The Father is the one who organizes the plan. But that doesn't mean the Son is any less grand or important, just because he plays a different role. On the contrary, Basil writes in genuinely moving prose, and I quote, For the soul's every help comes through him, and his particular names are intended to reflect a particular kind of care. When he presents the blameless soul without spot or wrinkle to himself as chaste virgin, he is called bridegroom. When, however, he receives a soul that has been afflicted with the painful blows of the devil and cures it when it has been severely weakened by sins, he is called a physician. Does this sort of care for us amount to an argument for his subjection? Or does it create the opposite sentiment, one of great power and at the same time saving love for man, since he was content to have compassion on our weaknesses and was able to accommodate our infirmity? Heaven, earth, the greatness of the seas, the creatures that live in the waters and the animals on dry land, planets, stars, air, time, and the diverse and ordered regulation of the whole cosmos. All this does not show an abundance of strength as much as the infinite God being able to join himself to death through the flesh without suffering in order by his own suffering to give us freedom from suffering. Let us not then think of this economy through the sun as a compulsory service done out of a slave-like subjection. But rather as a voluntary solicitude, that accords according to the will of God the Father, out of goodness and tender-heartedness for His own creation. End quote. That is, I think, as powerful an argument for the greatness of the Son as anyone has ever articulated, and I'm sure, dear listener, that it leaves you with a sense of awe and wonder, and with one burning question in your heart. Why exactly is Basil yapping so much about the sun when the title of this book is On the Holy Spirit? We have spent almost a full year on this journey, and the poor third person of the Trinity hasn't had a single full-length treatise in their honor. And now that we have one, we don't have a full treatise because Basil still spends the first bit of it talking about Jesus. What's going on? Well, what is going on, dear listener, is this. This book is structured kind of like a sandwich. Basil begins with a discourse on words and prepositions that mostly focuses on the son's relationship to the father. Then we get a middle section that is all about the Holy Spirit before concluding with some more remarks on prepositions. I guess it made sense in Basil's head, but to the reader, Basil seems to have a little bit of a problem with going off topic. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by Going Off Topic. You know what off-topic sounds like? Hot Topic. Remember Hot Topic? Man, I do. My friend Sam would always make fun of the kids who hung out in the Hot Topic in our Evansville mall. But, you know, I kind of think he secretly envied them because he was really into super nerdy things, too. But he tried to hide them so the kids at school wouldn't make fun of him. I never really paid much attention to Hot Topic myself. Sam and I played paintball together. I was too busy imagining how you could have, like, a really awesome game of paintball in that mall. You could, like, post snipers on the rooftops with paintball artillery cannons so that anybody who wanted to attack you would have to roll up in some kind of armored paintball tank to shield them from the blast. And you could be all like, pew, 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 pew! And they'd be like, boom, boom, boom! And it would be so awesome. But you'd also get super messy from all the paint so you need a shirt that you and your mom didn't care if it got messy. Maybe something from Hot Topic. But anyway, there's no topic hotter than our salvation through the Spirit, and Basil would probably appreciate it if we got back to that. Now, that initial foray into the Son's divinity was not completely pointless, because Basil can use many of the same arguments to prove the Spirit's equality with the Son and the Father. Much the same arguments about the interchangeability of prepositions are made with respect to the Spirit. I'm going to skip that part since you basically know it already. Prepositions can be applied to different members of the Trinity, and their meanings shift a little bit, so we can't use them to establish any kind of subordination. Basil has some additional arguments to make as well, and one thing you will notice straight away is that he appears to be arguing against a new group of people. He begins this part of the treatise by describing the views of those who say the Holy Spirit must not be ranked at the same level as the Father, and son. In other words, Basil is not arguing against Aetius and Eunomius, who wanted to kick the son out of the father's divinity as well. He is now arguing against those who have no particular problem with the son being Homoousius, but have a big problem with the spirit. That's right, friends, the coolly named Pneumatomachoi have re entered our story. These spirit fighters, as their name literally translates to, were introduced way back in the era of too many theologies. But only now have they caused a big enough stir to get a full refutation from Basil. Now, Basil's first argument against them is liturgical. He points to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, in which Jesus commands the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thus have churches baptized all the way to Basil's day, and thus they have baptized even to our own day. Now, baptism is a very big deal. It is the means by which a Christian enters the church and becomes marked as God's own forever. So if initiation into the saving mysteries requires baptism in the name of the Holy Spirit, as well as Father and Son, that's a pretty good indication that all three are equally important and of equal rank. Basil then responds to the counter-arguments raised by the Numen of Mokoi, I'm going to move through them pretty quickly because, well, they're just not very good, and they don't take too long to dispatch. So first of all, the Newman will point out that sometimes Paul talks about baptizing in just the name of Christ without mentioning the Spirit, so clearly the Spirit isn't important. Okay, cool, Basil says, but Paul also sometimes talks about baptizing in just the name of the Spirit without mentioning Christ. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and Luke chapter 3, verse 16 are further examples of this. So check and mate. Then the Newman and a mock voice say, well, okay, but sometimes the Bible talks about the Father and Jesus and the angels together, so so how come you single out the Holy Spirit for special treatment? Maybe the Holy Spirit is just like, like one of those angels, like the most important angel. Basil thinks this is a really bad argument. In fact, he says it's not even worthy of a response but he's going to give one in the spirit of brotherly correction. The spirit makes people children of God. Angels don't. You can only make someone a child of God if you are kin to God yourself. An angel can't just declare that we are children of God and make God obey. God has to be the one to do that. God has to be the one to adopt us. So if the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, as Paul will call it, can make us children of God, then the spirit must be God. Full stop. To which the Newman and Mockboy replied, Well, well, fine, Basil. You've got your nifty baptismal argument, but we also baptize people with water. It says to baptize with water and the spirit, but we don't say that water is God. And some people got baptized in the name of Moses back in the Old Testament, but we don't say that Moses is God. What do you have to say to that, Mr. Church Father? What Basil has to say is this. Those are really terrible arguments. The reference to baptism into Moses comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, and seems to actually be about the Israelites' passage through the Red Sea. So it's not a formal baptism, it is a foreshadowing of baptism, and it doesn't make the actual baptismal formula any less important. Also, Moses foreshadows Christ, not the Spirit, since Moses stands in the same intercessory role that Christ will later fill. So this argument would demote Christ, not the spirit, which is the opposite of what the Numen want to do. Then Basil moves on to their argument about water, and he is really not having it. He says, and I quote, Their arguments are the sort angry men make, because their mind is darkened by passion. They spare nothing in their attacks on the one who vexes them. End quote. In other words, you guys, I, I literally cannot even... But he does make a response. The water is a symbol of baptism, specifically the symbol of our death to our sinful past lives before we can be made alive in the Spirit. That's why the Spirit is associated with water, not because the Spirit is just as ordinary as water, but because the water functions as a symbolic death that prepares the way for the Spirit's life. But then Basil moves on to chapter 16 of the book And this is where the real heart and soul of the treatise begins. Now that he's answered a few typical objections from his opponents, Basil can build up a positive case for the spirit's equality. The reason the spirit is equal to the father and son is because the spirit is inseparable from them in all their works. In other words, because in the divine economy, in that ordering of operations, father, son, and spirit always appear together. How do people prophecy? By listening to the Holy Spirit. What does prophecy prove? That the prophet in question is of God and is to be trusted. So when the Spirit speaks, people know that God has spoken. So the Spirit must be divine. Q-E-D. When God made the angels, who makes the angels holy? The Spirit. After all, being holy is part of being an angel. Which is to say that making an angel holy is part of creating them. So the Spirit is creating right alongside the Father and Son. And of course, who brings the Father's will to Jesus? The Holy Spirit that descends on Jesus at baptism and drives him out into the wilderness and through whom Jesus casts out demons. Most importantly of all, the Spirit stands in the same relation to God as our Spirit stands to us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, For what human knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also, no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. In other words, everywhere you see the Father and Son acting, you see the Spirit acting too. In fact, the Spirit is within the Father himself. So why would we go about separating the Spirit from the Father and the Son in being when the Spirit is never separated from them in action? We shouldn't we should take our cues from the scriptures and affirm the equal dignity of all three. Now, of course, affirming the dignity and equality of being of all three persons runs the risk of tritheism. If Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally divine, then how is it that we can claim to worship one god and not three? Well, Basil could just say, Listen, guys, you've already bought that the Father and Son are equal, and yet we aren't worshiping two gods so just take the same logic and apply it to the third person. He could say that, but he doesn't, because our boy Basil never misses an opportunity to nerd out about God. So Basil gives a full answer to the question, and a rather different one than we saw in Against Eunomius. Remember that there, he talks about the Father, Son, and Spirit as three things sharing in the general category of divinity, which opens him up to questions of how these three are one in any meaningful way. For three human beings all have the same substance of humanity, but we don't consider them to be one. Basil's approach here is quite different. In fact, he says that, quote, we do not scatter the divinity among a separated multitude, end quote, which seems like quite a coarse correction. On the contrary, he says, one form, as it were, has been imparted in the unchangeability of the Godhead. For the Son is in the Father, and the Father in the Son. They have unity in the fact that the latter is whatever the former is, and the former is whatever the latter is. And so, with regard to the particularity of the persons, they are one and one. But with regard to the common nature, both are one thing. Basil, you see, still wants to talk about a common nature. But now he talks less in terms of an abstract divine nature and more about the mutual implication of the Father and the Son. They are in each other in such a way that whatever one has, the other automatically has also. When you see one, you see the other. But how then are they one and not two? In the same way that a king and the image of a king can be one. Both communicate the presence of the king, but in different ways. Now, of course, you can see a king without seeing a portrait of him, but the Trinity doesn't work that way. What Basil appears to be saying is something like Tertullian's psychological analogy of the Trinity. The Son and Spirit are forms of the Father's self-expression that are inseparable from him. Just like you always have your internal monologue with you, the Father always has his word with him, and just as there is a spirit and intention behind your words, so the Father's spirit is always with him. Our experience of God is such that we never experience the Father alone. We always experience the Father with the Son and the Spirit, just as when you see someone talking to you, you automatically experience their word and you guess at what their intentions might be. But Basil is the one who puts it best, so I'll turn the mic over to him, and I quote, When through God's illuminating power we fix our eyes on the beauty of the image of the unseen God, And through the image are led up to the more than beautiful vision of the archetype. His spirit of knowledge is somehow inseparably present. He supplies to those who love to see the truth the power to see the image in himself. He does not make the manifestation from the outside, but in himself leads to knowledge. For as no one knows the Father except the Son, so no one is able to say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The way then to knowledge of God is from the one Spirit through the one Son to the one Father. And conversely, the goodness and holiness by nature and the royal dignity reach from the Father through the only begotten to the Spirit. In this way the hypostases are confessed and the pious dogma of the monarchy does not fall away. End quote. It's a beautiful bit of prose. And I don't have much to add here, except to note that Basil is again using some of our favorite Greek vocabulary, hypostasis, meaning a substantial thing, something that won't evaporate like mist, or like a reflection in the mirror when you walk away. That kind of technical vocabulary is slowly building towards a cohesive, coherent use, and Basil is a part of why. The rest of the material on the spirit consists of Basil refuting more arguments of the Numenomakoi, and they continue to be pretty dumb. The Numenamakoi ask why we should glorify the Spirit. What does the Spirit do to merit glory? And Basil says, well, the Spirit helps create the world, resurrects us, sanctifies us, does prophecy, and intercedes for us before God. Is that enough to be worthy of glory? The Numenamakoi then say, well, well, maybe he isn't a master like God or a slave like men, but, but something in between. Maybe his status is kind of like that of a freedman. Basil replies, and I quote, What do I lament more, their stupidity or their blasphemy? End quote. Because everything created is in the relation of a slave to God. You can't be free of obligations from your maker and redeemer. Either the spirit is a creature, in which case he's just like us, a slave, or he's divine. Pick a side and stop equivocating. And then, just to drive the point home, Basil piles up a long list of quotations in which the spirit is called Lord. Finally, Basil tosses in one more interesting little argument for the Spirit's divinity, which is the Spirit's incomprehensibility. The world, that is the mortal life full of sin and confusion, cannot know the Father or the Son. That's from John chapter 17 verse 25 and John chapter 14 verse 19, respectively. But the world also cannot understand the Spirit. That's in John chapter 14 verse 17. So once again, the Bible is placing the Father, Son, and Spirit on an equal pedestal, the pedestal of unknowing. It's probably one of Basil's weaker arguments from a logical perspective. Just because I don't understand three different things doesn't mean they are equal to each other. I don't understand how a steam engine works, how a heart beats, or why some people voluntarily eat chicken breasts when they could have perfectly good chicken thighs that are right there. But that doesn't mean all three of those things are equal. However, from the perspective of theology, Basil is making an important point, which is that all three members of the Trinity are equally unknowable. Consider the setup of some of the Eusebii and their friends, in which the Son is created as a sort of middle god or medium god, because creation needed a god it could understand, and that was never going to be the Father. That picture is long gone from view. All three members of the Trinity are alike in majesty and alike in divine darkness. But if we can't understand God, there is something about God we can understand. Which prepositions to use? Yes, that's right. We've now come to chapter 25 of the book, which brings us to the bottom bun of the preposition sandwich that is on the Holy Spirit. As our tired teeth chew through the glutinous garrulity of Basil's argument, I'm going to speed things up a little bit for the sake of time. You may be wondering why Basil is harping on about prepositions so much. After all, he's already talked about this. The answer is that there is a liturgical innovation he is keen to defend. You may be familiar with this phrase, Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. It's often recited at the end of psalms and worship, or at various points in the church liturgy. It's so well known that it has been set to music approximately 8,523 times. Times like... composition. The sheer number of arrangements and the quality of so many of them might make you think that the church has been using this phrase forever. But it hasn't. In fact, the older version of that phrase ran, Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Now, Basil uses the newer formulation. He has no problem with the older version, and he claims to have heard people use both. But the newer version refutes heretics who think they can get away with not honoring the Son or Spirit, so it tends to be what Basil gravitates toward. He then gives a whole bunch of cases in which words like with, in, and and are used interchangeably. It's found in the scriptures, it's found in church tradition, and it's found in everyday language. I'm not going to bore you with the details of it, we've seen all this before. Let's just say that Basil has done his homework, and he has brought the receipts. With the receipts thus brought in all their punishingly intricate glory, all Basil has to do is conclude. He does so by stepping back to take a broader look at the state of the church. He compares it to a naval battle in which a thick fog has descended while a storm rages so that no one can tell friend from foe. He describes the disunity and arrogance evident in church politics in prose so stark that I'm going to let him tell you about it one last time, and I quote, now this disturbance of the churches is stormier than a wave of the sea. We attack each other and are overturned by each other. Even if the enemy did not hit us first, the comrade wounded us, and if someone was hit and fell, his comrades stepped on him. We have in common with each other that we hate our common opponents, but whenever the enemies leave, we then harm each other as enemies. In such cases, who could count the number of shipwrecks some sinking because of the enemy's attack, others because of the treachery of allies, and still others because of the inexperience of the helmsmen. Indeed, a downcast and abhorrent darkness possesses the church since the luminaries of the world, which God established to illuminate the souls of the people, have been put out. They refuse to recognize their excessive desire to fight with one another, and already there is an impending fear that all may be lost. Personal hostility deteriorates into general and public warfare. The glory of lording it over opponents is preferred to the common good of all, and the present delight and ambition is preferred to rewards stored up for later. The one limit of friendship is to speak as one pleases, and a lack of agreement in beliefs is a sufficient motive for hatred. End quote. Basil's poignant words paint a grief-filled picture of division in the church by a man who had dedicated his life to it. They are especially powerful as he concludes a treatise about the spirit of unity, the one who makes all Christians one body. How far the church is from God's ideal. Basil's words here also point to another key aspect of this text. It is intended as a peace gesture to the Numenamakoi. Now that might surprise you. After all, Basil has made no secret of the fact that he thinks most of their arguments are hot garbage. But Basil is not writing this text in a fit of rage. He has carefully considered all of his words. He has planned this out, revised it, and then published it. In the ancient world, the kind of harsh and biting rhetoric we see here was expected. It's part of how Basil and how every other public leader in the period was trained to speak. So while his words might start a fight today, they would have been considered part of a pretty ordinary adult discourse. While Basil probably wasn't going to persuade the ringleaders of the Numenamakoi to his side, he did know that he might persuade some of their followers if he could just pull the wool from their eyes. That is what he tried to do. And he made one very significant concession to the Numenamakoi. Nowhere in this entire treatise does Basil describe the Holy Spirit as Homoousius with the Father and Son? In fact, nowhere in his career does he do that. The closest he comes is describing the three's common nature, but even that is a different term in the Greek. Basil knows that the word Homoousius is going to be a lightning rod for his opponents, and so he decides it's best just to not poke the bear. He is less concerned with getting the Numenamakoi to use the exact same formula that he does, than he is with making sure they properly honor the Trinity using whatever formula they choose. That is where we'll have to leave Basil the Great for now. He was many things. An educated Christian who turned the full force of his education to the Bible, its preaching and exposition. A former monk who never forgot his ascetic practices. A bishop who stood up to emperors and washed the wounds of the sick. A charismatic leader and uniter a busybody who could put church business ahead of his friends, a grammarian who delighted in discussing prepositions. But perhaps above all, he was a peacemaker, trying to unite various traditions and factions against what he saw as a terrible threat to the worship the church offered to God. It is on those terms he might wish to be judged. We will have a chance to see how he did in that work later down the line, but for now, there is another Cappadocian father we must turn to, whose theological speculations and political problems both ran deeper than those of his elder brother. It's time for us to turn our gaze to the brother a few branches down on Basil's family tree, the famous and still-studied Gregory of Nyssa, our next thoughtful companion as we continue using the theological express lane through this very cramped and crowded road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltarmag.com.